Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. I uh, promise that I won't go long today. Isn't that interesting how the, the word promise just doesn't seem to carry a weight to it with us anymore, right? Because, I, and I'll, I'll admit, like, the believability of me not going long is, is slim. Um, so, so a lot of times we, we realize that the, the difficulty that we have with the idea of this word promise is it's based on the believability of the one who is giving the promise. And so very often we find ourselves going, well, okay, I don't know if I can believe this because they have said these things. Their word has not been true. They have not, they have not held true to what they said. Our yes hasn't been our yes. Our no hasn't been our no. Yes, there's, there's also the variable of, of maybe us not believing a, a promise because of, of the fact that we've been hurt by someone or we don't know this person very well. And so it's hard, to, it's hard to trust the word that they would say if you don't know them very well. We'll also maybe have... Um, been broken, whether by our own mistakes or the mistakes of others, to, to deep down inside of us believe that, that no one and nothing is trustworthy. And so someone saying they're going to do something is always going to have that variable of them potentially not doing it, and therefore they just can't be fully trusted. He promises a big deal to us. And it's something that God uses, and so um, as we have been digging, and we started last week into this book of Genesis, we're going to kind of jump into the life of Joseph. We, we, we started last week with this broad overview of Scripture. I skipped a bunch of stuff. We're going to zoom in a little bit more this week and a little bit more next week before we get into the life of Joseph. Trying to, again, help us as a church. Our desire is that um, we would recognize it as God is writing his story and we will flourish regardless of our circumstances, when we find ourselves in his story. And so that's where we are, and that's, that's where we're at. And I would encourage you, if you missed last week, to, to get back there, because again, some of the story that you maybe haven't paid attention to that we're going to try and weave out and work as we get to the life of Joseph through Genesis. Um, see, God, we, we started last week with this idea that, that the story starts. God creates, and it's, it's good, it's very good. In fact, we, we, see, we see over and over this, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And, and everything seems to be going. And, and here we see the, the people of God in the place of God with full participation of the presence of God. And it's just good. And everything is, is, is wonderful. And after a time of flourishing, we see that it all goes wrong. And if you spent any time in the scriptures, you realize it's only a few paragraphs for us sometimes before it takes a really hard turn and goes bad really quickly. In fact, as I read through the scriptures, I'm always, I'm always, uh, I always find it a bit comical how quickly it goes bad. And, and then I, I remember my house and we have a basement and we have four kids and we've been in this house for a while when our kids were even younger. And, and I can think of times where it's like, okay, the kids are going to go play downstairs and if they have friends with them, this is just exacerbated that much more. But in less than like five minutes, I can walk down and it's, I don't even recognize the house. Like, why is there ham on the ceiling? And where, where, did, all this, where did all this furniture come from? We don't even own this furniture. 
It's, a, it's, it's, it's amazing how quickly they can dismantle an entire room. Like every bucket is turned over. Everything that's stored is, is, is on top of it. And things that don't belong there aren't there. And it doesn't take that long. In fact, we see that in, in the story of God, that, that as, as, as Adam and Eve chose to, to define good and evil on their own as opposed to taking God's definition, we see that sin enters in and it gets really bad really fast. Sin is, is not trusting God and his vision for human flourishing. Genesis 3, we talked about it last week. Genesis 3, we see the, the fall and the sin and all those things. We're going to hit that in a second. Then Genesis 4, we get to the first sons of, of Adam and, and ultimately Cain ends up killing Abel. And it just gets bad. And then after Cain and Abel comes Lamech, and Lamech, Genesis 4, again, you see this? He's, he's so evil that he actually writes a song about how he's more evil than Cain. And we just see it spiraling and getting harsher and more violent and more nasty. Genesis 6, we get this, this the sons of God, and there's all sorts of theology as to who these sons of God are having sex with the, the, the women of men. But ultimately, we see that the, the bloodline through Seth, the promise that we talked about last week, is, is at risk, and it gets so bad that God decides in Genesis 6, the flood, to start over. And he starts over with one family. And then after that, we, we see that it doesn't take long. We don't know how long it takes for a vineyard to grow and to be able to get some, some wine out of that. But ultimately, Noah, Noah does that, and he makes a vineyard. And, and everything in this moment seems to be like, yes, this is a do-over. One family in a garden cultivating. Every single thing seems to be looking like it's supposed to. And, and, and Noah takes that wine and gets drunk. And something extremely inappropriate happens with one of his sons, Ham, in the tent of Noah. It just gets worse and worse. Finally, the, in Genesis chapter 11, we see that, that the, the, the people develop this new technology, which again, in essence, should make us feel like, yes, the people of God using the technologies that he has given them, using creative ways to make something, but instead they decide, instead of spreading out, they decide to stay together and say, let's make a tower to God. And bricks, and this is where God scatters them. And there's lots of stories in here of other individuals and little moments of bright spots, but those bright spots grow dim very quickly, like my basement, anytime my kids go down there. And we just see this over and over again. God scatters them, sends them all over, and, and you're left wondering at the end of Genesis 11 is, how is God going to get us out of this? Like if, this is, if this is the reality, and, and we feel this tension, when we read the Old Testament, we're like, oh, what is, what is wrong with this? And if we're really honest, we realize that what we're, what we're most disgusted with is that we see ourselves in that part of the story. We just see it as just broken. And we realize that, that the teachings of God are not just the right way to live. They are the best way to live. Yet over and over and over again, the people of God keep dismantling that, running from that. There's no way for us to flourish. And it's through these stories that we're, we're brought into the fact that the problem isn't out there. The problem's in here. See, many of us today, we, we, we fall prey to the idea that if we could just get the right politician or the right system, if we could just do the right justice, go to the right church, 
that we could fix the problem, but really the problem isn't all of those things. Those things may aid or hinder in the process, but really the issue isn't, isn't the right system. The issue is there's something wrong in here. And we see in, in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. A few months ago, um, I, was, I was caught by surprise. And praise God, I had some wonderful men and women around me to kind of point me back to truth and say, Brent, you're, you're surprised by that which you shouldn't be surprised. You're still, still being sanctified. You're still broken. You're still, you're still trying to walk out in faith by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, what it means to live for God, but you're at war with the flesh and yourself. And you're still in a world where every single person is deteriorating, where darkness is, is prevalent, regardless of how much light may show. You're still, you're still in, the, in the, the here, but the not yet. So don't be surprised. And yet we as a church, we as individuals, so often when we lose sight of the story of God, we are perplexed. How can this be so bad? Well, I mean, he's kind of told us it's going to be. We see it over and over and over again. Every bright spot, every judge, every king, everything that happens through the Old Testament and the story of God. Yes, someone's following God. And then it goes sour real fast. We realize we're all so messed up. This world is so messed up. So how does God work out salvation? He does this by raising a family through which he will bring the Savior. God is is going to redeem people back to shalom, back to peace, and he's going to do it through humans. This was his plan all along. He does it through these things that we call covenants, promises, but the, the question that, that, that I asked this week, that I wrestled with, is why save anyone? I mean, if this, if this is the reality, why, why save anyone? I mean, if, again, it takes a while to grow a vineyard, and I don't know when you can get wine in that, and I didn't look into it, but, but even saving Noah, we knew that he wasn't saving him into the garden. He was saving him into a fallen world. But why do it? And I think when we were reminded of the story of God and what he's doing, we realize that this was always his plan. His people flourishing and filling the earth with his glory in the place of him experience the full presence of him under his reign. That was his plan all along. One scholar says it this way. He says, in fact, to tell the story of God redeeming a people through Jesus is to tell the story of God's covenantal relationship with his people. And so a couple definitions that we're going to have to hit before we dig into this, and we're going to work through all of the covenants today. This is why I told you I wouldn't be long, okay? First one is, re- is this word redemption. In the Bible, it means freed by payment, released by ransom, or brought out of slavery. In, in the Old Testament, this word usually was used I- around a patriarch, a family. And we use that kind of word as a, as a negative word. The idea that, that someone would redeem a a, a widow or an orphan or someone who had, because of losing a husband or losing their, their, their head of their household, was, was at risk for having no inheritance, no place to live, no, no livelihood. In fact, uh, one, one scholar says it this way, in Israel's tribal society, redemption was the act of a patriarch who put his own resources on the line to ransom a family member who had been driven to the margins of society or of society by poverty. 
who had been seized by an enemy against whom he had no defense, who found themselves enslaved by the consequences of a faithless life. So God presents himself as the patriarch of the clan who has announced his intent to redeem his lost family members. Father God is buying back his lost children. That's what we see. He's buying back his, his lost children by sending his eldest son, the heir, to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, so that we, the alienated, might be adopted as sons and daughters and share forever in the inheritance of this firstborn of all creation. See, redemption wasn't just a, a bringing about freeing of slaves. It was a bringing life back to where there was not life. So redemption is this freed, this freed from slavery or, or um, freed by payment or released by a ransom. And we see that, that ultimately that, that God is going to use Jesus to do that very thing for us, to redeem us. The second word that we need to understand is covenant. And this is one of those words that I spent a lot of time nerding out over the last couple of weeks, so forgive me for this. Um, it was used regularly in the Old Testament times, and, and not just, the, not just the, the, the people of God, not just Israel. It was used outside of Israel. Covenant was very, very common. There are many different kinds of covenants, individuals, tribes, nations, between equals, and then most often what would happen was between a greater and a lesser a covenant would happen in this place. And, the, and sometimes those would happen because they were conquered and they would basically enter them into a covenant. But a lot of times, people as lesser value would, would enter into a relationship with a greater power for protection. And the understanding was, for the greater, um, was that they would have to military support the lesser at any time they needed them. But the lesser would owe um, taxes or, or, or things. They would have to do certain things in this way or allow transport, safe transport through land. There were so many reasons why these things happened, but they were a chosen relationship or partnership in which... Both parties made binding promises to each other to work together for an equal goal. Very, very common. They usually had a ratification ceremony that would have, would have included uh, oaths and signs and almost always sealed by blood in some way. In fact, usually cutting an animal in half and sometimes requiring the lesser party to walk through them to both seal the deal but also tell them what would happen to the lesser party should the covenant not be followed through. Both ratifying the covenant and also to symbolize the consequences of what would happen. They became, it became so common, sacrifice was so common in ancient Near East that, that even the word covenant became to cut a covenant. Covenants contain defined obligations and commitments of both parties, but differ from a contract in that they are relational and personal. They were always obligating both parties. We still practice covenants today. We do it through credit cards, mortgages, marriages. These, these agreements that we set ourselves into where we believe we're going to get something, we've, we're held to doing something, and should we not, there's many consequences that come in this way. We just don't use that language. And as we get ready to start talking about some of the, the covenants of God that he has done with his, his people, the, the greater to the lesser kind of covenants that we get to do, I think it's first we have to recognize that it didn't actually begin in the garden. Most of us think Genesis 3.15 is kind of the beginning of that, that, that first covenant where he's going to redeem his people, but actually we see um, it began long before that within the relationship of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. It's the three in one. A term that is, is called the covenant of redemption. 
Uh, this was his plan from the beginning of time. One scholar calls it this way. The God of Scripture has no plan B or plan C. His plan A is from everlasting to everlasting. It is both perfect and unchangeable as it rests on God's eternal character, which is, among other things, holy, omniscient, and immutable. God's eternal plan is not revised because of moral imperfections within it that must be purified. His plan was not corrected or amended because he gained new knowledge that he lacked at the beginning. God's plan never changes because he never changes and because protection admits to no degrees and cannot be improved upon. Scripture clearly points to the fact that the plan of redemption was included in the eternal decree at the council of God. We look at verses like Ephesians 1, just to give you a few here. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Another one, 2 Timothy 1, 9. God, speaking of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. All through Christ's ministry, we see him talking about doing the work of the Father with the promised blessing that comes from it. Over and over and over again, we see him commissioned by God. Before he even incarnated, we see that that Jesus is talking about this this commitment and this this agreement that happens between him and and the Father. We see it over and over again in his commission in John 5, John 6, John 17. We spent a year and a half going through it, so you can go back and listen to it there. So the covenant is the language with which God is using for us and, and, and the people understand for us to understand how God is going to relate to us. We see that God's promises began before creation. There was no plan B. So when we get to, to, to Genesis 3 and we see the promise of a redeemer and that God predicts a violent, device, uh, decisive final battle between the seed of the woman and the serpent where the, the seed of the woman will be victorious over the devil who temporarily usurped God's kingdom. He undoes the curse. When we see this, it's, it's, it's a beginning of the promise that was already planned in place. So before pronouncing uh, judgment on humanity, God promised to do something, to fix what he had broken by sending a savior for us, to rescue us. We see this in Genesis three fifteen. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see the beginning of this. And so after Genesis 3.15, we find the people of God and the place of God with the full presence of God exiled from God. They they, they have to leave the land of God. The presence of God is not dwelling in with them anymore, and they're not obeying and living under his reign. And so everything that God had begun, we see now, is needing to be corrected. And what we're going to do in this short amount of time today is is just shoot an arrow straight through the promises that God made and how we see how he gets us to the answer for this promise, the one that he began that we talk about in Ephesians 1, verse 4. The idea that that God is aware of every scenario that's going on and he's working it out like Ryan said in the call to worship, simple rocks being put in place and he had a purpose for them, just like he has a purpose for us. And through history, we see the specific outworking of his promises through individuals that he makes promises to. And again, like I, I began, these, these promises only go so far if we don't believe the one whom he's giving them is trustworthy. And what I think that the story of God gives us as we look at these promises over time, we see his faithfulness to, to do that which he says. Proving not only what we should already know in him is that he is trustworthy. 
that he is, he is worthy of praise. And so the, the after, after the, the, the fall in the garden, we, we talked about real quickly, I, I ripped through 10 chapters of Genesis to tell you about all the, the negative things that just happened in the beginning, so you'll have to go and read that and enjoy it yourself. But this downward spiral gets just to a really, really difficult. And, and in Genesis 6, we see the, the, the first kind of the big covenant that most theologians say, hey, here's the beginning. It's the Noahic covenant, the, the Noahic covenant. It's a hard one to say for me. God enters a formal relationship with Noah and the living creatures where he says, promising that despite the evil of humanity, despite the downward spiral, he will not again destroy them the way that he did through the flood. And what's unique about this, this covenant promise is that, is that it, it's, a, it's like a recreation. It's like a restart because you see that, that after the, the flood happens, after this pot, when he, when he meets with Noah and says, I won't do this again, he tells Noah to do the same thing he told Adam to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread out. Go. Build this. But we know that Noah's recreation isn't in the garden where everything is good. Noah's recreation is still in this fallen world that wears a stain of the sin that came from Adam and Eve. And so here we see that God is entering into um, a reestablishing contact with the fallen world, which is the first step of getting back to the people of God and the presence of God and the place of God with his full presence enjoyed, flourishing the way that we were intended to live. And so Noah has this promise. And in every, most covenants, again, they have oaths and they have promises. One of the signs in this one, God says the bow of the sky, the rainbow is his, is his sign that shows that he will keep this promise before them. It's a completely unconditional covenant. There is no, there is no um, expectation on the people except for doing what they were supposed to do, which ultimately they won't. But the fact that they won't be destroyed is, is a commitment by God himself. So this is the start again. Again, it echoes of the garden creation, one family in the garden. But we know that God doesn't go through a long list of, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good here, like he did in the garden. Another thread here at Noah that I think is really wonderful for us to do is, is, is we see that through the waters of chaos, and again, in this people, water really meant death in this time. It was, it was scary. It was unknown. It was, it was difficult. Even in the created order, we see that chaos is the water, and, and God separates the chaos and brings that together. And so in this, in this Noah covenant, we see that, that it talks about the promise of Jesus. The water of the flood washed away sin and wickedness and brought a new world with a fresh start before God. The water of baptism does the same thing, providing a passage from the old to the new. First Peter 3 picks up on this. He talks about it and says, look, it's, it's, not, it's not that, that no escape death through water, and we escape death through the waters of baptism in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Again, those arrows are pointing all the way across. God is showing, hey, I'm, I'm doing something. Are you paying attention? Are you willing to take part in it? After Noah's covenant, we get to the Abrahamic covenant. This is the, the revealing of the promise of Genesis 3. See, in Noah, we see that God has reestablished contact with the people of God, but we don't have any answer for the place or the name or the, or the blessing or any of those things. And in Abraham, we get all of those. We see that, that there's, a, there's a commitment to, to make his name great, which is funny because the, the people of Babylon, the, the, the Tower of Babel, the whole point, the pre- one of the ideas was that they would make a great name for themselves. 
And he says, no, I, I will make your name great. I will, I will develop a, a land. I'm going to send you to a land, a place now for me, and a blessing will come through you that will bless all people. So God enters a redemptive partnership with Abraham, developed, and we see this, it, it kind of unfolds in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17. It's interesting how it's kind of these multiple conversations over time. Again, if you, if you remember, Abram is, is already old, and he has no descendant. In fact, we know that the descendant that he has comes from his, his, uh, his servant. Because his wife said, hey, well, obviously, we're going to have kids. There you go. At this point, before he's even done that, he's just got a slave in his home, a servant in his home that he's giving his inheritance to, which is what would have been happening in a family without children. They would have identified someone in their household, said, this is where my stuff is going. And God says in Genesis 12, no, 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 it's not going to be there. You have your own heir. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here we see the promised seed picked up that started in Genesis 3.15. This idea that, that through Abraham's offspring, he's going to bring the nation, which will become Israel. The, the land, a people, a universal blessing. And we saw last week that Galatians 3 picks up on this, that the, that the, the, the offspring isn't about a bunch of people, but it's speaking of one specific offspring. And how also in Genesis or Galatians 3 that this is how we are brought into the story as sons and daughters of Abraham through Christ as being the offspring of the promised seed. We then see in Genesis 15 that, that God tells Abram that he will, uh, he will be a shield and that he will have an heir that is his own from Sarai. Tells him, your offspring will be numbered like the stars. And I love this. In verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, and he believed the Lord and, he could, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Right here we see that, that this covenant isn't going to be a works of flesh thing. It's a faith thing. Goes on and um, tells uh, Abraham, he hears this, he believes these things, but then afterwards he's like, well, how do I know for sure that I will have an heir? How do I know that this will happen, that my descendants will be no more numbered than the stars in front of me? How do I know that? And God says, okay, well, let's, 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 cut, a, let's cut a covenant. Give me some animals. And so he brings some animals, a heifer, and some other animals, and cuts them in half, doesn't cut the birds in half. And what is in one of the most profound and amazing things that if missed, we just, we don't, we lose sight of the value of what's happening here, is in that moment when he's doing this, the expectation of a covenant would have been the greater and the lesser. The lesser is the one who passes through the cut animals, sealing the deal and then saying, should the covenant be broken, it's on my blood. And God does what? He causes a deep sleep, same language used of, of Adam when, when Eve was created. And, and God passes through the animals. What is he doing? He's saying, look, this covenant will happen, and if it's failed, whether by you or me, my blood will be spilled. So he makes this incredible promise with Abraham, and, and, and then in verse 17, he, 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 or chapter 17, he renames Abraham, Abraham to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And then the names have meanings in, in such a different way, but, but Abraham becomes not the father of one, but the father of many. 
God renames him because he's, he's refocusing your, your mission. This is where you're at. You're going this way. You have a purpose in this way. And this is where we get the, the other aspect, the building part of the covenant, where now he has to do this circumcision for every person that's following him. So we see in the Abrahamic covenant, it's both conditional and unconditional. It's conditional in the fact that God is, 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 that, each, is that we are to play a part that we have a role to play, that he is to teach this, his, his offspring, the children, the descendants, what it means to follow God, and he has to, to circumcise every male living with them. We realize it's unconditional because God is the one who passed through the animals, not Abraham. So even if man fails, the blood, of, the blood is on God, not on him. So in this promise, we see as it's working back to the very first promise of I will redeem, we see now a people. All right, God is not only has he reestablished contact with us like he did through Noah, reestablished relationship. Now we see in Abraham, there's a, there's a promise of a people who will become Israel. There's also the promise of blessing that will come through this people. And we see that Abraham is told at the beginning of life, hey, hey, leave, leave this land. I'm taking you to a land. You're going to a land. This is, this is where I'm going to be with you. This is, this is your home. Again, in this day and age, we don't, we don't think about land because we, well, I mean, housing right now is really expensive, so maybe we do think about it more. But for, but for most of us, we don't think about how our livelihood is centered around the property with which we have. To, to take someone and say you're leaving all of your kin, to take someone, to leave all of your kin. You know what that, that does for the society? That means that Abraham's family, that, that should something have happened to Abraham, the ones that were underneath him would have been cared for by his family. They're gone. They've removed themselves from that spot. He's putting himself entirely under God's care. To go to a land where he doesn't have anything. He doesn't, he doesn't have a right. He's a sojourner. So then he has less rights in this time. It's at risk of slavery, at risk of starvation, at risk of, of becoming enslaved to many different people. And we see that God's saying, no, in, in, in the Abrahamic covenant, he's saying, no, I'm redeeming a people. That's going to come through you, Abraham. I'm going to do it through you. So we see here, the place of God is being established, the people of God and the blessing of God is being reestablished through Abraham. Which brings us to the Mosaic Covenant, and this is probably the one that we're most <laughs> aware of because it's got the Ten Commandments and the tablets and all the fun that happens at Mount Sinai that, that we hear a lot of times. But basically, we see that the people have been failing the covenant again and again and again. And one of the things that happens through these covenants is blessing and curse. And one of the, the most predominant ways with which God says, if you don't follow these things, what will happen? Exile. We saw it in the garden. You're, you're cast out. You'll be enslaved. You'll be overrun. And so people do it over and over again. And ultimately, they're all in Egypt, enslaved. And then God raises up Moses. And you get the whole let my people go. The Charlton Heston or the Disney, whichever one you want to look at, right? And in this moment, we see that God rescues, a scholar says, God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt and promises to make them his own treasured possession a holy, set-apart nation. He will personally dwell in their midst and bring them into the promised land. See, we see that he will be their God and they will be his people. Plus, they will be a kingdom of priests that mediate for all people the goodness of God. 
So this was a conditional covenant of grace. Israel was to obey the terms and the laws given at Mount Sinai, and God promised to bring blessings if they followed his commands, but curses if they disobeyed. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is the most clearest version of that. And most notably, what was almost always included in those curse was exile. Being cast out away from the presence of God. But now when we get to this covenant, now we see that one more aspect is brought. The presence of God brought back to the people of God. So the promise of redemption. Noah bringing, uh, the, the God reestablishing relationship with people. Through Abraham promising that they will be a people, they will have a land and that they will be a blessing. And now in Mosaic Covenant, we see that not only all of those things are true, but that he will bring them into that land through this. And also now the presence of God will be with them again. Because it's a bright spot. <laughs> this is one of those moments that they're like, yes, it's finally coming. This is why you see them celebrating the Passover over and over and over again every year. Remembering that God is, is, is at work in his promises Which brings us to the next big one, which is the Davidic covenant established through David, the son of Jesse, the tribe of Judah. If you remember last week, tribe of Judah, this is where the Messiah will come through. He's the tribe of Judah as a king over Israel and promises to make his name great. The promises made to Abraham and Israel will be fulfilled through his lineage is what we see now. And we get one more addition in this covenant. As David, we talked about it out of 2 Samuel 7, I encourage you to go back and listen to it for time's sake today. But we see that, that in this promise here that it is a promise of a king. That, that David will be their king and then he says, but it will be a kingship that will, will last forever, which causes the pause. It didn't last forever. They died. David died. Solomon died. People kept dying, which brings us to the next covenant. So we see here that the king and shepherd for God's kingdom is now shown for the place of God's kingdom with the people of God's kingdom. The promise is working its way all the way through. Which then brings us to the new covenant, which maybe most of us are, are familiar with to some degree. It's that, that Jesus is this king. One, one theologian says this, he says, the New Testament presents Jesus as the offspring of Abraham who trusted his father even to the point of death and so became a blessing to all nations. He is the obedient Israelite who perfectly kept, fulfilled, and and, and thus transcended the law of God. He is the royal son of David who inaugurated God's kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection and now sits at God's right hand reigning as a shepherd king over the earth and will continue to reign forever over the new creation. In this new covenant, we get total forgiveness of sins, cleansing from shame, new hearts of flesh, the indwelling Holy Spirit. All of this causing us to love God's laws and walk in his ways. We have bold access to God and can stand in the realm of grace. We trust that a renewed world is coming where peace and righteousness will reign forever under the rule of King Jesus. And it's all possible because him, the perfect covenant keeper, God, established it through Jesus. See, the, the, the solution to sin in the world isn't a new system or try harder or don't mess up or find a new cause and eradicate it. Think about it this way, guys. There is enough money in the church, just the church that, that professes Jesus as king to pretty much do away with hunger in this world, but it's not happening. It's, it's a heart issue that needs to be dealt with. 
And I mean, you see that through all of these promises over and over from Noah to, to, to Abraham to, to the Mosaic stuff to David. Every single time it's like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, man. It's not a system. It's Jesus. The reason you and I stand today holy or blameless before God is not because we were right. We were part of the right system. It's because we are a co-heir with Christ, the one whom kept his promises to make a people with him. We can flourish today, not because we are good at following his laws, but because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us to even give us the ability to choose good. Scholar says it this way, and I, I love it. He says, do you see how the covenants progressively build upon one another, forming a backbone of sorts to the redemptive storyline? God preserved the world through Noah, initiated redemption through Abraham, formed a special people through Israel, promised a shepherd king through David, and then fulfilled all of his covenantal promises through Jesus. With each covenant, God's promises and plans to save the world through the seed of the woman become clearer and clearer until we finally see that redemption can only come through King Jesus. We can see God's promises traced through his word. Jesus is, is the embodiment of the covenants, of God's promises. Jesus establishes it all. Look at how faithful he is. Think about just how incredible it is for him to accomplish this with fallen men. He did all of this while we were spiraling out over and over and over again, and God continued to weave his story through to bring about redemption for people so that we could flourish under him as our king be in the presence of him, to be, to be anchored to the throne room of grace, as the author of Hebrews says. The teachings of God aren't just the right way to live. They are the best way to live and flourish. And this is where we find ourselves in the story of God. We find ourselves in this spot, and many of us are like, oh, cool, okay, God did a lot of cool things. We don't think about how, how powerful what he's done to... to to, before the ages of time, write your name in the book of life. Think about your own inception story to faith. It doesn't have anything to do with you. But look at what he did to make you and me a sinful, dark person that could have written our own poems or songs like Lamech. And he, he, he deems you holy and righteous and blameless because of what he has done for us in keeping his promises. You are a fruit of him keeping his promise. He and he alone is trustworthy. So when he says he is going to do something, guys, he's believable. Don't let our own brokenness of people breaking promises make you think that God is going to break his. I said it last week, when we see things like, I will complete a work that I began in you, we can trust it, regardless of our circumstances. Because this is so key for us to understand, because the life of Joseph is not one to be like, I hope I have that life. This really gets its legs in our life when we realize that, that as hard as this life will be, we know that God is still faithfully working out his promise. Think about how easy it was for us to forget his promise through the whole COVID fund the last two years. How quickly fear took place when we started believing anyone and everything apart from God and his word. 
we're not immune to this. There's a couple things we should see in this. One is, is again, that we shouldn't be surprised when it gets hard. We shouldn't be surprised that we tend to struggle with sin. And please, please hear me on this. The expectation of you following Jesus is not that you are perfect. It is that he is perfect and his perfectness has clothed you. You want to walk out these commands? You want to uphold our part of the covenant? You can only do it because the Spirit of God indwells in you to do so. If you want to know what it means to live a life of faith, you need the gift of faith. So this is what God does. He holds a a promise all the way through. And I know it was a lot, and I skipped over even more. So I would encourage you, get in and read and see these things. He and he alone is trustworthy. So when we get to the new covenant, we're going to take communion, actually. If you guys can pass that, that'd be awesome. We're going to pass it today so you can sit in your seats. Um, I want to encourage you to, to take this really seriously because it's an it's an enactment it's an it's a it's embodiment of a covenant that god made with us through jesus christ and so to to take this flippantly and just to not care about it is 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 a little bit weird in in my mind because because god shows how serious he is about redemption a couple ways that we could take this flippantly is is just not care to proclaim jesus as god that's a flippant way to do this Another one, and, and Corinthians 11 tells us this, is, is to take it in a way that's unworthy, where our life is riddled with unrepentant sin or divisiveness within the body of Christ and still taking it. When we take communion, we're declaring that we are going to die to ourselves daily. That's, that's, the, that's our part of the covenant. It's, it's, it's all begun and started and done through Jesus Christ, but, but he says, now live, walk with me. Live out what I have commanded of you by my strength, by my power. He gives us the ability to even do it. Really, we have the ability to actually choose good with Jesus. The cup of of God's wrath is what we all deserve. And Jesus drinks this cup for us so that we can drink the cup of redemption. The promise that began before the ages. We have no right to take communion except for what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. We've been bought. Jesus is the faithful Israel of the seed of Abraham, the everlasting king of the line of David. He is the greater. We are the lesser in this covenant. He spills his blood so that we can stand whole before God. So don't take communion lightly. Not because it's something super spiritual happening in this moment. Because it's a symbol, it's an incredibly powerful and amazing promise that God has kept in your life, in my life. Where we identify ourselves as him being our king. We're his people. We walk in obedience to him, empowered by his spirit. We see how serious God is, so we too should take this seriously. Um, Kyle, I'm going to need one too, or someone, if you guys could bring me one. Thank you. Exodus 24, 8, in the Mosaic Covenant, after Moses had just 
read all of the, the tablets the second time um, to, to all the people, uh, he says this. He says, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, the blood of goats, thank you, and, and lambs. He was sprinkling it on people and, and splatting them at them. And, and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So he cut the covenant. This is how the promise is made, is through the, through the blood of bulls and goats. Well, Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, 27 through 28, says after he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. Um, a theologian said it this way. I'm just going to read it because it was, it was wonderful. Exodus 24, Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus says in Matthew, this is my blood of the covenant. This echo is not coincidental, nor was it missed by its first century audience. Rather, on that Passover night, Jesus announced to his disciples that something greater than the Exodus was about to transpire. By means of oath and sacrifice, another rabble of slaves was about to be transformed into God's covenant people, 1 Peter 2, 10. As Moses sprinkled the blood of bulls upon the people of Israel in order to ratify the Sinai covenant, so Jesus distributed his own blood that night to ratify a new covenant. And this time the oaths were not sealed with the blood of bulls or goats and the ashes of a heifer, but by the blood of God the Son. Moreover, the slaves who were freed from their bondage by this new covenant were not delivered from Egypt, but from death itself. Thus we see that the safe and structured communion meal that you and I participate in according to our liturgies and traditions is actually a most abbreviated representation of the ratification of the new covenant. And in this new covenant, the Lord of the cosmos has served as both the greater party and the sacrifice. So we get to walk in this covenant because he who gave it, who planned it, is faithful. Church, this, this wrecks our hearts when we realize all that he has done to make a people that deserve only death his very own possession to buy us with his perfect son. God has kept his promise with you to the highest degree through thousands of years of history of broken people messing it up over and over and over again. And he is faithful. Do not be deceived to believe that he is not church. Do not be tempted to try and define good and evil on our own as Adam and Eve did in the garden. But instead, let us fall at the feet of our King who gives us the presence of God, gives us a land that we too can be excited about, which is not your expensive real estate in Boise, just so you guys know. That's a tent. Your land is the new heavens and the new earth that he promises to come again with. He has sealed that. So when, when Jesus, in that upper room, that first century, the ragtag group of people that by all means made everything really, really messed up afterwards too, he says to him, he says, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took that cup after giving thanks, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, sealing that new covenant that you and I get to live in today. 
because of what he and he alone has done. For his glory alone, we drink. Father, I know that um, there's just too much of your goodness to even pretend to comprehend in a whole lifetime, let alone a few minutes in a church on Sunday. But God, I pray, I pray that it would be out of the recognition of your goodness to us, to, to who you are, your goodness, regardless of what's happening in our lives, God, that this would draw us to, as your people, worship you, not just with singing, but that our whole life would be about worshiping you, that we wouldn't let anything get in the way. We wouldn't give that which only you deserve, our worship, to anyone or anything else, Lord. For those that are here today that, that hear all this and still find themselves on the outside looking in, God, would you draw them in? And for those that are within that, are underneath your covenant, but have been living as if they are exiled, God, would you remind them all that you accomplished to make them your own? Would you remind them that they are not identified by what they do or how well they do? They are identified by Jesus Christ alone. We thank you for keeping your promises. We thank you for never, ever failing to do so, God. Forgive us for all the ways in our life, whether it's intellectually or practically, we believe the lie that you are somehow not in control or not keeping your promises. You are so, so good, God, and we see it over and over and over again. And I can't, I can't imagine how, um, how painful it would be for me to love my kids the way I do and watch them continually turn their back on me. I can't imagine that, but yet, Father, you, you have seen that over and over again in my life, in the life of your church, and yet you still willingly and joyfully endured the cross. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for sealing our covenant. Thank you for passing through the sacrifice to be the blood so that we can stand whole and complete before you. And so, Father, I pray, I pray, I plead that as we, as we step into a time of singing or, or praying or maybe we need prayer for someone else, God, I pray that we do so out of just a, an open heart that wants to worship the God who kept his promise. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.